Okay, our reading this morning is from Romans chapter 12, and it's on page 1139 in the Blue Bibles, under the heading of A Living Sacrifice, Romans chapter 12 and the whole chapter. Paul starts this passage with the word therefore, and we're often told when you see a therefore, ask what it's there for. And um, if you read the preceding chapter, um, you'll know that Paul is dealing with the two great doctrines of election and man's free will. And humanly speaking, the two cannot be reconciled, as you probably came to the conclusion on Thursday, if you're in a Bible study. And Paul ends that passage with this great doxology, um, an expression of awe and majesty at God's holiness and his um, ability, if you like, that's too small a word, to marry these two great doctrines together. And um, that song we sang earlier was terrific, wasn't it? There's nothing too hard. God can do anything, even match these two doctrines together. So Paul starts, Therefore, in the light of all of this that I've just said, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing and perfect will. For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourselves more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourselves with sober judgment in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. For just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ, though many form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. We have different gifts according to the grace given to each of us. If your gift is prophesying, then prophesy in accordance with your faith. If it's serving, then serve. If it's teaching, then teach. If it is to encourage, then give encouragement. If it's giving, then give generously. If it's to lead, do it diligently. If it's to show mercy, do it cheerfully. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in love. Honour one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervour, serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with the Lord's people who are in need and practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you... Live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room 
for God's wrath. For it is written, It is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you'll heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome evil. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. May God bless his word to us this morning. Thanks, Jeff. Why don't we pray together before we look at Romans 12. Heavenly Father, thank you that we have access to your word. Thank you that we have access to your mind in it. Thank you that as we look in it, we can understand who you are and what you're like and what you've done for us in Christ. So please open up your word to us and open up us to your word this morning that we might leave here changed as a worshipping community. And we pray it for Jesus' sake. Amen. In um, 1707, Isaac Watts wrote what has probably become his most famous hymn, The Majestic When Amindic Survey the Wondrous Cross. And as the first line of the hymn indicates, it's a, it's a song that causes me to look back, to reflect, to contemplate, and to survey with awe and wonder all that God has done for me in Christ. And you see, for the individual, for the human heart that stops to survey God and all he's done, there's only one appropriate and, in fact, inevitable response. And it's recorded for us in the last verse, look, of the hymn. Just cast your eyes over it. Were the whole realm of nature mine, that were an offering far too small. Love so amazing, so divine... It demands my soul, my life, my all. If all of creation, if everything in the entire existence of this universe belonged to me, it would be an offering far too small to give back to God in view of what he's already given for me. The only response is to give our all. Love so amazing, so divine, mercy so magnificent as we'll look at this morning. Romans chapter 12 verse 1, that it demands my soul, my life and my all. And that is exactly Paul's point in Romans 12 verse 1. It is the, it is the hinge of this great letter, the turning point. After 11 chapters of rich theology, all that God is, all that God's done, Paul turns our attention to what does it look like now to live in view of God's mercy. And look what he says, Romans 12 verse 1, Therefore, therefore, brothers and sisters, I urge you, says Paul, in view of God's mercy, in view of all that we've looked at over these last five or six weeks, God's magnificent mercy, in view of it all, offer yourselves, your bodies, your all as a living sacrifice. Love so amazing, so divine, it demands my soul, my life, my all. And you see the little word mercy there in Romans 12 verse 1. 
It's actually plural in the original. It reads better in view of God's mercies, plural. It's not just one act of mercy in view in Romans chapter 1 to 11. There is wave after wave after wave after wave of mercy that comes crashing into the believer's life. Not just a trickle, but a torrent. A torrent of kindness and goodness and mercy. And Paul says, now in view of that, brothers and sisters, in view of what God has done, Romans chapter 1 to 11, now will you, I urge you, to offer yourselves as a living sacrifice. This, says Paul, is your true and proper worship. I don't know whether any of you have read this book on the screen here, True Worship by Vaughan Roberts. It's a book in which he tries to unpack the the true nature of Christian worship. And in it, he tells a little story of a a 13-year-old boy that I'm going to embellish slightly for our purposes this morning. So picture the scene, 12, 13-year-old boy, and he's sat at the back of church and he's maybe twiddling his thumbs a little bit. He's half engaged, half not. The reading is read. It's Romans chapter 1 to 11. It's a big reading. But he listens. And then the preacher stands up. And as he preaches, as he explains God's word, so it begins to resonate. The truth of Romans 1 to 11 begins to resonate in this boy's heart. And as the preacher preaches, he he speaks of sin, right? We've been here. This is where we've been the last five or six weeks. He speaks of sin, and where we stand as humanity, guilty before a holy God, Romans 1 to 3. He speaks of God's grace, the solution in Romans 3 and 4. What God has done in Jesus to pay our penalty at the cross. He speaks of the blessings in Romans chapter 5, of peace and of hope that come flooding into the heart of the believer. He speaks of the new life, Romans chapter 6 to 8. The Spirit comes to indwell the believer and give us new life, but it means it will be a battle until we take our final step in this world and our first step in the next. But the victory is assured, says Paul. And then in Romans 9 to 11, this is where we were last week. He speaks of God's sovereign grace. God will have mercy upon whom he'll have mercy and he'll have compassion upon whom he'll have compassion. God is a God who is rich in mercy. And as this boy sits and absorbs this truth and listens, so it begins to make sense. And so he begins to smile, right? In his heart he smiles because it's true. And so the preacher introduces the last song before he dismisses the congregation. And with it the collection or the offering. And the little boy, we don't do it like this anymore, but in the old days you'd have a little plate or tray like this would go round. And the boy watches the offering tray during the last hymns it's been sung and it winds its way along the rows. And he sees people slip their hand in the pocket, maybe put in a little brown envelope or a five pound note or a couple of coins. And he watches this tray all the way until it arrives with him. And he stood there with a tray in his hands. And he looks down at the tray. And he remembers Romans 1 to 11. And he sees the cross of Christ standing boldly at the front of church. And do you know what this little boy does? Puts it on the floor and he steps into it. Because he's got it, right? He's understood Romans 12 verse 1. That in view of the cross of Christ, in view of God's mercies, plural, it demands my soul, my life, my all. Not just bits of me, 
Not just bits of my life and bits of my time and bits of my energy and bits of my skill sets, but it demands all of me. Every single bit of my life. And the word bodies, as we come back to Romans 12, verse 1, that word bodies there, off your bodies, is a word that captures that. It is all of you. Paul's not just talking about your physical frame. He's talking, as Calvin says, it's you in your entirety. Your body encompasses all that you are. Every single ounce of your being. Or as the Lord Jesus might say, to love the Lord your God, yeah? All your heart, all your soul, all your strength, all your mind. This is what Paul says is true and proper worship. But you notice as well what Paul goes on to say. Not just what we're called to offer, but how. Offer your bodies, he says, as a living sacrifice. Now that's a little phrase that would have raised a few eyebrows, I think, with the original readers. And probably does with us today. Because if you understood the Old Testament sacrificial system, you'd probably associate sacrifice with death. Because what happened when the the community went to worship God at the temple, they'd have taken their animals with them, and the animal would have been sacrificed, it would have been killed, and it would have been offered dead to God as a substitute for sin, as an atonement for sin. But you see, the sacrifice that we're called to offer now today, post-cross, is very different. And it's different in two ways. Number one, the sacrifice we're called to offer is not a sacrifice for sin. End of Romans chapter 3, God presented Jesus as a sacrifice, as an atonement for sin. Jesus has dealt with our sin fully and perfectly through his once for all time death on the cross. This isn't a sacrifice for sin that we give. It is a, it is a thanks of praise. It is an offering of all our lives in response to the one true sacrifice Jesus has already given. And you notice that it's called to be a living sacrifice, not a dead one. Not a go to the temple, one-off, religious duty, there's my sacrifice done, turn around and I'll live the rest of my life how I want. But a living sacrifice, a continuous sacrifice, an ongoing moment by moment, moment, vibrant, all of life given back to God in worship sort of offering. It is to wake up every single day And to step into the offering tray of life and say, this day for you, Lord Jesus. And every second of it, yeah? Every second. Not just part of life, not just a Sunday, not just a Tuesday night prayers or a Tuesday night rarer or a Wednesday night home group. Not just parts of my life, ongoing sacrifice. 24-7 Christian living. All that I am, your bodies, living sacrifice all of the time. You see... The gospel doesn't let us compartmentalize life, to separate it, to say, this is my God time over here. I'll come to church on a Sunday, I'll tick that box, that's done. I'll do my midweek, that's done. That's my God time, but this is my me time. This is where I kick back for myself. The gospel slashes that sacred secular divide and says, no, all of life matters. Every second is precious and is to be given back to God in worship. I wonder if I ask you the question now, and I'm going to, and I'm actually going to give you 30 seconds to think about it. Here's your question. What are you holding back from God today? 
Which parts of your life are you not willing to put in the offering tray and say, Jesus, this is for you. It's not for me anymore. In view of your tremendous mercies, it is for you. 30 seconds, what are you holding back from God? Interesting, isn't it, that when we talk about 24-7 Christian living, all that you are, your bodies, all of the time living sacrifice, Paul says this is your true and proper worship. You see, I wonder if I'd ask you this morning, what do do you think of when you think of worship? What comes into your head? What is worship? You see, I think for many of us, we, we reduce worship down to just a few things that we might do when we gather here together as a body of believers. I think worship, I think singing maybe. I think worship, I think Bible reading. I think worship, and I think prayer. And please don't hear me wrong. These things are worship. If they're done with the right heart and attitude to God, they are worship. And it is a wonderful privilege to come together as a body of Christ, right? To celebrate God's goodness together. So please don't hear me undermining the corporate worship when we come together it's crucial but Paul does not let us reduce worship down to just that that's Romans 12 verse 1 it's all of life and you see I think you'll have seen little posters like this on church church notice boards come worship with us Sunday morning Wednesday night Bible study and again there's nothing wrong with that because we can come together to worship right it's a right thing that we do But you know what? If there's a sign like that on the outside of your church encouraging people to come, there must be a sign that says this. On the inside of your church, above your door on the way out that says, go and worship. That's Romans 12 verse 1. In view of God's tremendous mercies, there is corporate worship together, but then there is we leave this place with rejoicing in our hearts and say, it is all for the Lord Jesus in view of what he has given for me at the cross. Let the gospel of Romans 1 to 11 seep into every part of your being, not just bits of it, but all of it. And I know we've probably spent a disproportionate amount of time on Romans 12 verse 1, but I'm not going to apologise because it's crucial, because that verse is the hinge. It sets up the remaining five chapters. All that is to come flows out of an understanding of Romans 12, verse 1. And Paul goes on in Romans 12 and the rest of this letter to unpack what that true worship looks like. What does it look like in life, in my relationships, relationships with each other here as a body of believers, relationships with the world outside there? What does true and proper worship actually look like now in life? And I'm going to give us three headings that we're going to go on to look at. Three brief headings. First, it looks like this. Transform living in the world. As we think about our relationships with the world, with people outside, what does true and proper worship look like? This is what Paul says. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is. His good, pleasing, and perfect will. Hold on to that little phrase, pattern of this world. And now either in your Bibles or on the screen, come back to Romans chapter 1, because Paul has already explained what the pattern of this world is like. Look at Romans 1 verse 25. This is what the world is like. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped 
and serve the created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Amen. We were made to worship and every single person will worship something. Here's the heart of sin. The Bible calls it idolatry. We've pushed the one true God out of the picture and we set our hearts and our affections and our lives and we worship and serve created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Amen. That's the pattern of the world. So here's the deal, right? As we come back to Romans 12 verse 2, if... We, as a, as a group of people, if you as an individual seek to worship God with all of life to centre your entire existence upon Jesus, you will rub up against a world that thinks and behaves very differently. Which is why the Christian life's tough, right? And Paul, in, in light of what he sees and what he knows will be the reality, says, here's your challenge then, and it's twofold. There's a negative and a positive. The negatives there at the beginning, look, do not conform, says Paul, to the pattern of this world. Don't fit in. In view of God's mercy, don't lose sight of that. In view of God's mercy, plural, mercies, don't fit in. Don't let yourself be squeezed into the mould of this world. Don't get dragged along with the cultural tide of things that are going on around you. In view of God's mercies, do not conform. But in the positive Paul says, be transformed. Live radically different, gospel-transformed lives. How? By the renewing of your mind. As on a daily basis, we come back to Romans 1 to 11, to the core of the gospel, and we let the wonder of the gospel renew my mind, that I might walk out of these doors and live a transformed life for Jesus in this world. It's the vision statement of the church, right? Lives changed by Christ. Lives transformed. Just doesn't fit the acronym, but it's the same thing, right? Lives transformed by Christ. That as the gospel takes hold of our hearts, we would go and live all of life transformed for Jesus. And do you know what happens when that happens? Other people out there taste the gospel. They see something of Romans chapter 11, the hope of the gospel lived out in the people of God so that their lives too would be transformed by what God has done. To live transformed lives in the world. That's our first one. Here's our second one. Humble service in the church. Paul now turns his attention to not just relationships out there, but what does it look like in here as a body of Christ as the church. Have a look at verse 3 to 5. For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourselves more highly than you ought. This is humility, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith God has distributed each of you. And then he uses this lovely picture of the church as the body of Christ. And we see the physical body look in verse 4. For just as each of us has one body with many members... with many members, and these members do not all have the same function. That's the human body. Here's the metaphor, verse 5. So in Christ, we, though many, form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. Here's the pitch, and we've referred to it all the, already this morning, with church membership. It's a wonderful picture, right? The human body, the physical body, as a metaphor for the church. And it's so profound because it's so simple and it's so visual, yeah? How many bodies have I got? Thank you, Helen. One. 
It's not a trick question, right? One body. But then look at all the parts, yeah? Think about it. Hands, feet, legs, arms, bones, muscles, tendons, ligaments, organs. And God in his incredible wisdom and goodness has somehow put all these intricate different parts together to form one body that works or works sometimes, right? It works. And Paul says, so it is with the church. I mean, just have a look around, right? I mean, we're probably not the most eclectic mix of people, but I look around, I look around and think, what a random bunch of people, really. I mean, just have a look around each other. Different ethnicities, different backgrounds, different ages, young to old, different skill sets, different passions, different looking. We're just different, right? We're really different. But God, in his incredible wisdom, has gone boom, 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 boom. And he's pulled it all together to form one body. One body. United in Christ, fully functioning for the glory of God in this world. And Paul just says, hey, it's simple. You've already been brought together by the gospel. That's already happened. Now Paul says, serve each other with humility. That's verse 6 onwards, right? Different gifts according to the grace given. If your gift is prophesying, prophesy. If it's serving, serve. Teach and teach. Encourage and give encouragement. If it's giving, then give generously. If it's leading, do it diligently. If it's to show mercy, do it cheerfully. Paul just says, have a look at what God's given you. The point isn't to identify which gifts I've got in that list because that's not a finite list of spiritual gifts. There's a whole host of others lists in the Bible and spiritual gifts mentioned. Paul just says, stop now. As an individual member of the body of Christ, how God has made you, how he's set you up, what he's given you, the time and the energies that you've got at your disposal right now. And he says, how are you going to use it? How in a really small way are you going to use what God has given you for the building up of this body? That we would mature and that we would grow, not just in maturity, but in number as the body is added to. What does that look like? As Neil said, to go back prayerfully and think about all the different areas of ministry that are going on. How can I serve with what God has given me for the good of these people? That we might be one body, one worshipping community in this world. And then lastly, very quickly, loving action in all of life. Verse 9 to 21. Because here... Paul jumps about, he speaks about life lived alongside believers and non-believers. It's all, it all comes together in this section here. And he actually has 28 brief instructions in these 13 verses that we're obviously not going to be able to dwell upon them all this morning. But I've picked two. I think I've picked these two because they, they were convicting to me as I prepared. Maybe there's others in there that will, that will give you the notes that you need this morning. But here's the first one. Love praise, look in verse 12. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Love praise. The, I'm happy going with this, the greatest indication of how much we love people will be obvious in your prayer life. It is the greatest litmus test of how much you love. The man or woman that prays little... I think love's little. 
The man or woman that prays much, loves much. Because if people both hear each other, and people outside these four walls, if they really, really matter, then we would be praying for them, that the gospel would take root, that their lives would be transformed, that lost people would come to know Christ. We'd be praying for our gifts to be used for the glory of God. We'd be praying for each other's circumstances and situations, and spiritual struggles, and physical struggles. If people really matter, people really pray. And that's corporately when we come together on a Tuesday once a month. Yes, it's it's privately, it's in the solitude, it's in your families. Authentic love prays. And so I ask you, do you pray? Do you pray? Because love prays. It's 11. And then secondly, love boils. Back in verse 11. Never be lacking in zeal. This was, the, this was the verse for the savages, I think it was this morning. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. That word fervor in the Greek comes from the Greek word to boil. To boil. Here's the point. Our service of the Lord and each other is not just called to simmer. It's called to Boil. To boil over and to spill over in loving service to to the God of the gospel and to his people and to the world outside these four walls. And the question I ask as I look to this myself is, what is going to keep my spiritual fervor boiling, right? We've all asked it. Because one day your heart's on fire and you love the Lord and you want to tell people about Jesus. But the next day you just feel cold and empty, right? We've all been through these cycles throughout life. How do we keep our spiritual fervor boiling? And this is where we finish where we started. Because it's Romans 12 verse 1. The one thing that will keep your spiritual fervor boiling is the gospel of Romans 1 to 11. It is the gospel that will stoke the fires of faith in our hearts and keep us loving, keep us living, keep us serving until we take our last step in this world and our first in the world to come. Let the gospel lift your hearts to worship the one true God, all that you are all of the time. And let it lift your hearts to humbly serve the people of God that we might mature together. And let it lift your hearts to share that same gospel with a world that desperately needs to know it. Therefore, I urge you, says Paul, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercies, plural, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Let me give you a minute to ponder and to reflect, and the band are going to come up, and we're going to sing the appropriate response of when I survey the wondrous cross. But take a minute now just to ponder in your own heart.